Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast. I'm Harry Jarman, the founder of Gentleman's Journal, and today I'm joined by our esteemed editor, Joe Bournemouth. In a slightly different format, we're going to take you through the latest issue, giving you a sneak peek into everything inside. We hope you enjoy. Are we we talking now? We're talking, but do you want to do an official start? Well, I think the official start... Well, this is like the first of hopefully many more podcasts because we took some time off last year. Yeah, should we address that elephant in the room? I think there was... I think, was that your fault or my fault? It was my fault. I think you've been a bit preoccupied with lots of things. Yeah, spinning plates, spinning full plates. The strategy for this year is to do more podcasts, not necessarily about much, but more regularly. Yeah. Because apparently that's how you get more listeners. Apparently. And uh, yeah, we're only five years late to the party on that, so that's good. And we started off because we've now bought all this really expensive yeah. podcast stuff, which for the last hour we've been trying to set up. So your advice on everything you've asked me to buy, and we've actually now using the old podcast equipment. Yeah. So we've gone back to the stuff we bought in 2016. Complete and utter waste. The thing I always think about that is had we... We, we wanted to do a podcast in 2016 when no one really listened to that many podcasts. Yeah, we were first. And first I thought there. we were late then. And actually, had we actually put some effort into it then, we might be like the Pandora Sykes and Dolly Alderton of well, look, let's West hope, London. Let's hope that this year, 2024, is the year that things will change. <laughs> but anyway, we are in the Gentleman's Journal office. Do we go office? Yeah, office. Yeah, definitely. Gentleman's office. Journal office with our new podcast set up. We'll probably try and get a nice photo of us behind the microphones. Actually, yep. people don't need to see that, do they? No, God no. So we're going to go and talk through the winter issue because for those of you who haven't got it, hopefully after this podcast, it will give you a taster. Yeah. And then you will go and subscribe. That's yeah. the aim. Should we do, actually, we should probably do like a podcast discount. Yeah. I'm going to make up a code now. Let's make up a code the now. The code is Joe15, and that gets you 15 issues for free. That's not the code. No, 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 no that's, not not the that's, code. that's not good. But let's, no, let's, let's just see if this works and see if there are any listeners. So we'll do Joe, yeah. we'll do Joe50. And that'll be 50% off. Okay. We'll go and speak with the web team and they'll set that up straight away when this comes out. And, you and get... one of you gets a lunch with me. Paid okay. for by Harry. Paid for by... I, I'll agree to that. I'll agree to that. But it's actually very good this year because we're going, we're going back up from a biannual to quarterly. So I think yeah. we should do that, which is really, really exciting. Again, we yeah, we're bucking trends all over the place. Yeah. So we're, going, we're doing more print and yeah. more digital and we are doing more podcasts about nothing. So. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. We digress, though. We digress. So we are here to talk about the latest issue, which I am actually, um, I really loved. It's beautiful. It's sort of tentatively an American issue. And I think we started that with a loose theme, which we mostly stuck to, but I think you've got to be fairly sort of eclectic with these things. No, so it, it's broadly American. Well, we've got a very iconic American on the cover, in, the, in Brian Cranston, who's pretty cool. Brian Cranston, an absolute dream, who I like him because a bit like when we did Samuel L. Jackson, he didn't get famous until, well, properly sort of Hollywood, fuck you famous, till he was sort of mid-40s or something. And so he is sort of well-adjusted, a normal guy, um, not and, like some actors. And, and everyone loves him. And I mean, everyone, like, him. I, everyone I've like, spoken to, they've looked at the cover and gone, oh, he's so cool. Yeah, very likable. Like, completely like age demographics. He goes through the whole thing. So yeah, exactly. he's ticking demographics, which is what we try and do, really. Exactly, we tick exactly. demographics. Exactly. So we're going to go and touch on like a few little points. Um, and obviously, I think we should we should we go front to back. 
Yeah. Or do yeah. you want to dive around? Um, let's go. Let's go front to back. Okay. Well, uh, we're starting the portfolio section. It's kind of we had a lot of drinks in here, didn't we? Yeah. We had a lot of drinks in the in the form of we had a wine article on American wine and how it's coming of age. Yeah. It's the worst thing. The, the best thing to say about it. Guy Woodward wrote that, and he also did a whole like, which I found really useful. He did like the five wines to buy. Yeah. Which, exactly. Have you bought any of them? Uh, I haven't no. bought any of them. No. But it, but I have an obsession with sort of the idea of Californian wines. Have you seen the film Sideways? Yeah. With yeah, Paul Giamatti? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on Disney. I, I watched that the other day. <laughs> right, there you go. I, Classic <laughs> Disney romp there about divorce and alcoholism in middle age. Yeah. But no, that has always made me... I remember watching that film when I was about 18, 19 and just craving something I'd never had before, which is kind of Californian red. So now whenever I see them, I sort of seek them out and... But there was that way. famous moment, wasn't there, ages ago, where they did a blind tasting against the French. Yeah. There's also a film on that, I think. Yeah, exactly. And they did blind tasting and all the snooty French. Um, preferred, preferred the Californian Reds. Exactly. But actually, it's really interesting. And he's, he's gone and interviewed, like, some, you know, all the, the top guys there. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely worth a read. Exactly. And then I went to Japan in October to go and look at the rebirth of, like, a, a Japanese whiskey legend. Yeah. Um, Can you, do you want to pronounce it? Karu, I, Karuzawa? Karuzawa, yeah. yeah. So that is, that is how you pronounce it. You nailed it. But basically, this, yeah, it shut down just before 2000s and now they're rebirthing it. And basically, Japanese whiskey, like all whiskey, has gone completely bonkers. So I think an old bottle of this stuff, yeah. I think, fetches upward of £40,000. They're now rebirthing it. But it's not going to be ready for quite some no. time. So it's not going to be ready for a long, long, long time. But um, didn't a very old, a 52-year-old bottle, you write, sold, was the most expensive bottle of whiskey ever sold? Uh, yeah, at Sotheby's. £362,000. Yeah, it's pocket change. It's pocket change. Pocket that's change. A, that's um, half of a wardrobe of a one-bedroom flat on the King's Road. <laughs> okay. um, useful, so yeah, no, useful knowledge. Yeah, useful knowledge. That's the but it is kind of amazing. I, 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 it's going to be interesting to see if whiskey, I mean, I think whiskey outperformed, yeah, I mean, everything from classic cars to, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I didn't know that was like post-pandemic boom. but It's It was. Good. A lot of it was pandemic. A lot of people putting cash into whiskey have you, investment. But have you been it. to Japan? I've never been to Japan and it is the yeah. one thing I would like to do. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I feel like it's the only... I mean, they're such a cool, like, proud nation and so polite. And, yeah, it was amazing. I would highly recommend Excellent. Although it's a very long flight. Okay. It's, like, 14 hours because of Putin. You have to sort of circumnavigate Russia. And who are you flying with these days? Uh, British Airways. Okay. Not very good, though. Well, it's not. I think they're shaking it up. I mean, we'll get on to that. We won't get on to that. I think they're aware that it's not as good as it was. But anyway. It is actually, to be honest. I've had had some good experiences recently. Okay, good, yeah. So it's not too bad. Fine. Um, Right, and then in the portfolio section, Finley Rennick, we go on to Ivy League style. Yeah. Would you say this is actually our style that they resold? This is our style. I mean, I've been doing the Ivy League thing for a long since time. I was 15 and wearing Ralph Lauren polo shirts from yeah. Bista Village. But I always, they always say about Ralph that he took our style and they sold it. The British style. Us. Oh, I thought you meant you and me personally. Right, yeah, no, yeah. the British style. Exactly. And that, that's what he did. I mean, he's a sort of a, a myth maker. He sort of made it all up, which yeah. is beautiful. But he's the sort of pinnacle of it. But actually, obviously, Ivy League style was very much a 1950s college thing. And as Finley writes, it's sort of come full circle now that this Ivy League style is sort of streetwear. This kind of uptown, downtown thing that Amy Leon Dorr and people do. There's a picture of Tyler, the creator, looking like he's stepped 
off, you know, the quads of Harvard. It's a ridiculous thing. And obviously Drake's is the sort of British front runner of all that look. What have you got? You've got Drake's, you've got Rowing Blazers. Rowing Blazers does it. And Rowing Blazers kind of does it in a slightly more, they've taken the kind of street model of a lot of collabs and a lot of drops. And they do that with sort of classic, very ultra preppy kind of cricket jumpers and stuff. But it's remarkable that this stuff, I say I've been doing it for years, I really have been wearing this stuff, not because I'm fashionable, because I'm not fashionable. But it's very gratifying when sometimes... You're not doing it at the moment, though. You, I think you've gone... I know. You're doing the quiet luxury thing. I've gone son of Euro. Quiet luxury. I know. Well, I wouldn't say Euro, but okay. anyway, we say succession vibes, <laughs> don't we? Yeah. Joe basically dresses like Logan Roy out of a succession, so you were more Ivy League. I was much more preppy, and... But it doesn't, yeah, go, out of, it doesn't go out of style, though, does it? It doesn't, no. And it's a great piece sort of referencing that amazing book, Take Ivy, that Japanese photo book, which is sort of on every single mood board ever nowadays. But yeah, it's a real sweet spot for us, that kind of stuff. No, and then he also did a piece on the penny loafer, exactly. which is also part of that, which yeah. is now coming back. Do you have a pair of penny loafers? I've got a pair. They're actually at, I took them yesterday to yeah. Romsky's in Fulham, yeah, near the waitress, re- to get them just cleaned up. Yeah. Are you because going to wear them when you retire? I might wear them tonight. I might wear them tonight. You know what I, and we've spoken about this before, you know what I've, I've always been hunting for, and there is one because we made one, is an amazing pair of black suede penny loafers, which I think was so chic. Black suede. Black no, suede penny loafers. They were Boston, though. I mean, they're, they're, I wouldn't call them penny loafers. <laughs> I mean, they were crocker. We've, We've got to edit this, but that's, really that's good, embarrassing. a really good plug there. We did make a limited edition. Yeah. Black pair. Gentleman's Journal X, Crockett and Jones. Yes. They were actually called Boston... So they were, but they're sort of a penny style. I guess they? they got that from America. Boston, they did. They I also, think they, they also have a pair called the Harvard. It could be Boston and Lincolnshire. Yeah, it could which be. Which is a bastion of style. It could but be. The whole thing about penny loafers, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, I think they're great, but they, were, they, look, they made you look like a sort of red trouser wearing shuffle person for many years. And now they're everywhere and they're sleek yeah. and they're cool. And they're, I, always, I always think they're like the best, the penny loafer is that burgundy colour. Oxblood. Oxblood, yeah. that's the word. Sorry. Yeah, you've, I mean, not PC. They're, they're, they're the originals, I would say. They are, but they're, they're very smart, and they still do have a little sheen of sort of. And who's the company? Country. That does it? Like G, GH Bass, that's the original. GH Bass does, the, yeah, the American ones, but I think Crockett and Jones. Crockett and Jones do amazing ones. Love Crockett and Jones. Yeah, we love just it. say it one more time, <laughs> Crockett and Jones. Thank <laughs> you for all your support over Thank the years. Thank you for your support, Crockett <laughs> and Jones. Um, so. We're going to jump way ahead now to, okay. I think your, this was your brainchild all these years ago, to, right. to, to a section called House Notes. Quickly yeah. explain to the listeners. Well, House Notes what House is Notes an excuse is. to write things without having to worry about pictures, basically. Okay. The bane of having to do a magazine is if you come, come up with a great idea you want to do an essay on, and then the art team... This is really... Say, oh, we need to really, find photos. I call House Notes just... The, the shit that goes through your head exactly um, and you just write what you want if I want to write about it I, I wrote a piece about and a couple of issues ago about how credit cards aren't as good looking as they were anymore oh. and that you can't really write a thousand words on that what else did you do you did stolen ashtrays <laughs> stolen ashtrays yeah again that's just that's just something that's sort of part of my life yeah. this sort of criminal so element article on how you stole it yeah exactly so can you sustain that over a thousand words we'll give it a bloody good go yeah but um yeah but this issue i actually oh. think this because we had american themes so i think we're going to start on this article called mm. red rolls and billionaires yeah exactly seven men about town pick their new york's powerful tables talk us through this piece well the, who did you get the whole idea behind it, i think is that people don't really have power lunches anymore covid killed it 
wellness and health killed it. People go to the gym now instead of, you know, having seven martinis at lunch. And that's a bit of a shame, I think. So we thought New York, Manhattan particularly, used to be the home of the power lunch. All these great power addresses and sort of... What were the big ones in the day? There was one called the Russian something. We can put that in a post, which had a very... In the 80s and 90s, which had and a very... 44. 44, which yeah. was Ian Schrager's hotel. Yes. And that's where, I think, it's where all the Condé Nast And what's the one that Dana Brown talks about in his book? That's 44. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's where he that, got picked up. Well, that was that was basically... He was, he was working there. So, okay. Yeah, sorry. And that, that. Yeah, exactly. So power... T- whether you're serving them or sitting them, power tables can be very useful. Have we lost power tables now? Well, this is the thing. I think there's a big revival of that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think... But I think everyone going sober... I mean, yeah. Well, no, I'm not when I say sober. I think drinking now, less at lunch. I mean, everyone. I mean, like apart from December. Yeah. People don't seem to have. Well, Do I always you, love going to a restaurant when you see like the old guys in the corner. The old boys, the Wiltons, and, 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 and no, but just any, any, you know, any of these spots, yeah. and they they've got a bottle of red on there, and they're just they, yeah. you can see their two old friends just having. And I guess that happened all the time in the nineties. It must have done. And, My dad worked in advertising in the eighties and had a little. I mean, it, it, that, that's all they did. Yeah, Literally all they did. He, he this, didn't they, do any work. No, they would come into work. They yeah. would send their letters out and then they would go for lunch. Yeah. And then they would lie to their wives and say they were working in the afternoon, but I think they were just in their, like, clubs yeah, or whatever. in the clubs, yeah. 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 Anyway. Lying, lying. Lying. <laughs> lying. Um, but, but anyway, then, yeah. so, so we, we did this piece and we asked people, some young people, Zach Weiss is obviously a real young man about town in New York, um, Sean McCreese is sort of a brilliant New York magazine writer and then some of the old guard as well so Jeremy King who is obviously the most beloved restauranter in London Charles Finch who's probably had a lot of decent lunches and just asked them and Ben Elliott at Quincentia asked them what their, where they thought the most powerful tables are it's not surprising I think that Cipriani was mentioned three times three times yeah but they, there's hold on there's loads of different Ciprianis. there's a few isn't there there's downtown so like, there's one on the water down, so which is the one that 376 West Broadway one. Okay. But all these things, like you don't go to Cipriani's for the food necessarily, do you? I mean, you go for the scene. You go for the scene. Yeah, it's also, I mean, like same same stuff in, in London as well. You've got the yeah. Walsley. And now exactly. there's a whole load of ones that are about to open. And Jeremy King's opening. Exactly. And I think, Arlington. forget about New York, but I think London, there's going to be this huge renaissance in it because it's a valuable part of work. When was the last time you went out and did um, and got drunk at lunch? <laughs> Been doing dry January. Okay, um, but it's I now do, February. So I feel no. I know, but I'm trying to trying to keep it going. Okay, I have had a few drinks. I would say I'm very much looking forward to my boozy, boozy let's 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 lunch. But I just you can't get away with it anymore because you've got to come back and work. When was the last time you went? To I don't know, but I remember sort of 2000. Go on, answer the question. Because well, I don't spot. I don't work in an office now. No, I'm, no. You know, but when when I used to work here full time and had to come into the office, gosh awful yeah. I remember once coming up for some lunch with some brand and they sort of ply you with drink and you don't notice because your glass is going to type up. some words and you've got to type some words and sort of the moment when you walk through the threshold of the office and everyone's been there on a Wednesday afternoon and they've sort of eaten lunch at their desk and they look at you you really have to muster everything to look as compassmented as possible and I think you probably overdo it so I would always sort of be twice as active as I ever would sort of jumping around and patting people on the back and do you, just mean, trying you to make, look you sober. Your, you make your job sound so romantic there. You know, like yeah. just coming from lunch, sit behind your desk. This probably happened twice. That's the thing. Well, I, I think it happened a few more times yeah. than that, but let's not get into that's, that. That's 2018. You um, know, it was an right, odd time. Stick on New York. We're going to move on. So New York real estate royalty. Yeah. So 
Um, again, this piece is kind of interesting. You went to go and look at all of the... Big, I didn't. Did you not? No, Chris did. Chris Chris, sorry, so Chris did. <laughs> um, so Chris went and looked at all of the New York real estate families and the old families and then the new families. Basically, I think that New York is sort of ruled by these families. It's a yeah. it, real estate. Obviously, there's the most famous one. Should we mention his name? Yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, like, he's... But by no means the most successful no, at he's all. Probably, he's probably, he probably doesn't even touch these guys, no, does he? No. I mean, like, so these, yeah, the, the old guard... I mean, Harry um, Macklow in particular. Yeah. There was a profile on him, I think, someone did one yesterday, Airmail. They've got great names, all these guys, don't they? That's it. I always so, think that about New York businessmen, like, huge names. So they're like they? A.B. Rosen, obviously very famous, has yeah. a very big art collection. Cohen, Roth... Silverstein, mm. Milstein, Tish, Rose. This is a pretty um, interesting piece. And something that's probably... I don't know if we have that. Do we have that kind of those barons in London? Well, we do. The candies. I mean, you've got <laughs> candies. Yeah, but yeah, again, like... Be very careful what we say about yeah, the, I would say, the lovely you, candies. You've got, you've got the big families like Grosvenor's, Gargan. Yeah. I mean... Oh, but, yeah, actually, we do. We do them been, old school. But they've been going since... 17, whatever. Portman. Sorry, they probably go longer. They but, um, certainly have. And then we don't really have the new guy. I mean, we do, I guess. Yeah, we do. But anyway, really interesting. Now we're going to go away from house notes. And do okay, you don't want to talk about my piece about Volvo Estates. How odd. <laughs> okay. Yeah, bring it back. No, no, no. No, no, no. My point, my point, no, my point was purely that in the mid-90s, that there was nothing I thought when I was a child and I cared too much about these things. Cooler than a, those yeah. Volvo Estates with the backwards-facing seats out of the glass back. And if you had a, you know, a Listen, friend who had one of those... This article sums up house notes. Joe asked to write a whole piece on his love of the Volvo estate. Yeah, exactly. Because they stopped, make, they stopped making them. And I think we've lost something in the culture, is my point. Are you, they going up in value? They are. Almost how, certainly. How They're brilliant. And also, you know what? This ties it all back. They are the ultimate sort of preppy mobile. If you have a British racing green Volvo estate with you know, a ski rack on the top... Mark my words, that'll be the next Amy Leon Dorr shoot car. Will be that or Kith or someone. One of these. Yeah. You heard it here first. People. Do you, have you got one? I don't. I don't. I don't have any cars. No. Yeah. How come? Why not? Let's well, because and this is very exciting for everyone. I don't currently drive, but can I say that doesn't last have, week doesn't have a license. No. Either. I like to say it's a moral thing, but it's pure laziness. But last week I passed my theory test. Forty-seven out of fifty. So that's pretty good. Forty-seven. Out well, of 50. forty-three is the pass mark, so which is not that good. What are the three things you didn't get? I don't know. They don't even tell no, you, which is know. which is actually a real so oversight. When are you, when are you the doing, the, when are you doing the practical? Well, Leon, my brilliant driving instructor, is is at the moment he's shout got his out to Leon. Shout out to Leon. He's honestly he's changed my life. I've had bad driving instructors. Leon is. If I do something wrong, it's a good thing. He turns it into a positive. Okay. I want him to be my life coach. But he's got a special portal. This is fascinating. And on Monday mornings, he can dial into any cancellation. So we're looking at March. We're okay. looking as soon as March. At and which point, I'm open. I'm so, open to so gifted the, Volvos. So the, the cool thing about German's Journal is also we get to go and test drive some pretty amazing cars. Yeah, we do. So this do you brilliant. have... Do oh, you this have, is perfect. Do you have, like, a top car? Okay. Like? It's almost like I planned this all. Um, do I have a top <laughs> car? You, you know, like, you know I've always been fond of Polestar. Ooh. Which may lead us on to another article. But I, on you, you and I drove down to um, yeah, Goodwood I, Estate. That was when I one. found out you didn't have a driving license. Exactly, because you were my chauffeur and for the weekend. you were also offered to go on the Mila Mila. And then yeah. that was, was that, was that the catalyst when you were like, right? Yeah, many things, many things. Just a general sort of crisis of like confidence. I'd, it'd be nice to be an adult, finally, at 34. Yeah, it's great. 
I'm looking forward. So that's March. Very exciting. Right. We're going to move on to the house dates. Yeah. And we're going to dive in and stay on the American theme. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. is an American theme. This was an American issue. Yeah, 100%. We're going to go straight on to Miami. Yeah, welcome to Miami. Yeah. Um, I, th- I thought you were going to go into the song. I was. Well, the song is most, you know, British people's first encounter with it. Yeah. And probably what Will Smith was most famous for until he slapped Chris Rock. But I went to Miami once... And it stuck with me, clearly, because I thought, you know, you can't move for now. Every single person in America who's successful... You've been to Miami, you went last year, and who did you... you I interviewed Dave Grutman. Who is, like, the... Would you call him the king of Miami? The people call him the king of Miami, I'd agree with that. He's... he's, I saw a chart. Okay, he... A, A, he's beloved and charismatic. They're like the second mayor, and the mayor is pretty bloody charismatic. But I saw a chart of the 10 best-performing restaurants in the whole of the US, and he owned three of them. I mean, the, by square foot, his restaurant, Pappy Steak, which is... Which is ridiculous. Ridiculous place I mean, and wonderful. They bring, out, they bring out a steak and a chest and then they yeah. brand it at the table. Yeah, they brand it with a, tss, a thing. How much is a steak? I don't know. I didn't look. I didn't it's dare expensive. look. expensive. Yeah, I wasn't paying, but I don't look. <laughs> but they, they also bring out a steak in a um, gold briefcase, which glows at you. Do you think that's going to carry on? Like, uh, in Miami, it will. What's, what's the one over here around the corner? Nusrat. No, 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 awful. Because it doesn't work in London, because London is all about refined sort of understatement and in some ways... We like to think. We like to think, but but I think it is, and I think that place is dying around the corner from Knightsbridge. But in Miami, which is sort of the point of the article, that works. They are unashamedly, they love the good life. And there's people who've made their money in New York, they made their money in Chicago, they made their money in LA or San Francisco, and they've decided that like those places are not very friendly to think, the good life. They're having a great time. I think what's really interesting is I'm going over in March to Miami. And, yeah. and the reason being is I'm actually meeting like a load of our like, luxury brands out there. They've all uh, you know, relocated from New York to Miami now. Which, yeah, which, exactly. I mean, there is, a, there is, let's say, there is a tax thing, obviously, in some ways. But actually, I think it's just an oh, easier I city. I thought they were going there for the good weather. There's part of, partially okay. that. But there's good weather in LA. Like where people go to Monaco just for the sun. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but Miami's got a lot, I would say, a lot more to it. Though it's not controversial than Monaco. I mean, and LA's got the weather, but you, you know... But you also, like, you've got a from the Caribbean. Yeah, exactly. Everything else. And, and it's a, very a, local as well. Hedge funds have all moved there as well. Yeah. And they're not... They Citadel don't seem, moved they don't there. They seem to be coming back. No. A lot of them did it in the pandemic because Miami had sort of softer lockdown laws. So a lot of people moved there because they wanted to keep their offices going. And then they've just stuck around because it is you know, for all intents and purposes, a much more fun place and a much more open place. A lot of these people, you know, Silicon Valley types who run sort of big funds told me that they used to just hang out with Silicon Valley people. All they talk about all day was techs and Series A and seed rounds and all that stuff. And they'd lose their minds. And you come down to Miami and your best friend suddenly is a tennis player or a golfer or a magician. You know, it's like, it's it's cross-cultural in a way that you'd hope wealth and success has access to but actually sometimes you sort of get stuck in ruts so it's not new to say that Miami is the most important city in America but I really think from going from a sort of punchline in the 80s and a tainted by the sort of Miami Vice cocaine warlord image Hold on. it's now um, an amazing cultural hub and do you think it's a Beckham effect there as well Beckham's definitely helping things Lionel Messi helping things but one of the guys I interview in this Jack Abraham, who's a massive VC out there, and he's got this theory that all the best sports stars in the world, the best sports teams in the world, if you want to know what the best city is, you look at what the best sports teams are. And actually, Miami is killing it in most American sports, and now they've got the best 
a football team in America. And he's sort of thinking that sport often follows culture and then money follows that. So Go it's very Miami. interesting. Go to Miami. And Go to Miami. Talking of cocaine, please. Uh, we're going to segue. Good oh, segue there. We're going to segue. segue. We're going to go meet the cocaine warlord saving the Amazon. Absolutely. So this, is, this piece was um, written by Tom Ward. So his name is Ivan Mordisco. Is that right? Mordisco. Mordisco. Oh, no, no, sorry. Mordisco. Yeah, you're Mordisco. Right, sorry. So this is kind of like a controversial figure that we wrote about. He's a FARC leader, drug smuggler, local kimpin, and he's ironically saving the Amazon. Do you think this is saving his business? Or do you think he's doing this as a moral obligation? It's very hard to say, but it's for, it's convenient for both. And maybe that's all we can hope for in this world, is that people who want to save their businesses also find it useful to save the world. But it, it is true to say that in, in many, by many metrics, he is doing more to protect the Amazon rainforest than any individual on Earth. Which is weird. That it also enables... We're not... We're, by the way, well, we should say we're not glorifying this. We're not glorifying yeah, it at all. He's obviously... But it is an interesting sort of... It's a nuanced story, isn't it? That sometimes environmentalists come in odd forms, basically. Yes. And in this case, I mean, that is the most bland way to say it. But in this case, it's certainly true. I don't know if the world is a better place for his presence, but the Amazon certainly is. Talking about the environment, shall we, shall we move to Polestar? Yeah, Polestar. Good. Um, I, I'll, do you want me to, want me to go on this? One? You did this. No, yeah. I went. I, I actually. This is when I came back. I came back to Heathrow from Japan. Right. Forty-hour flight, and then I basically sat in Heathrow for two hours, and then got on a plane to go to which terminal? Polestar. Was it five? <laughs> I think I had to change. I, oh, no. I came into five, and then I changed to three, and then I arrived in Gothenburg. Yeah, it's quite a hard word to say that as well. Gothenburg. Gothenburg in in Sweden, and. We went to the home of Polestar, which yeah. is kind of a, you know, I want to start by saying this. It's this massive campus, which is basically Volvo's campus. So Polestar's parent company is Volvo. And we went up to this design studio and their chief designer who has got a really, really charismatic guy called Max Mazzoni. But it was like from the 80s and it was where the CEO of Volvo used to have his office and it overlooked the whole campus. Yeah. And I'm, it was kind of like that. It was kind of like those 80s times where everyone was making loads of money. Yeah, and had big and proper he was offices. sort of like looking down. Anyway, it's now been turned into things. But very interesting, we went down to Polestar, which is kind of like a silent car company, not, not because it's electric, but I was just saying it like, yeah. the brand is kind of like, it's very design-led. Yeah. Um, and it's basically like if you're trying to look for an alternative rather than a Tesla. Yeah. It's kind of a cool brand, isn't it? It's, 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 it's much a, cooler and... I mean, Maximilian Masoni, let's, the, the name is ridiculous. Yes. And we, we've interviewed and met Max a few times. Yeah. And he is sort of everything you want in a Swedish designer. He is yeah. like both this kind of philosophical and poetic, but also like incredibly mathematic and sort of logic driven. You wouldn't introduce him to your girlfriend because he's also very handsome. <laughs> he's very cool. Yeah, and and he cool. sort of embodies it all. And uh, we interviewed him for a GJ Live podcast series um, at the end of last year. And you think that these things are going to be all driven by data and maths and engineering. But actually, he's trying to make the cars look as human as possible. And he's sort of got this great theory about why we make cars that always seem to look like faces. Like, there's no reason why the car should be set up like that. So there's a real human side to, to Polestar. And whereas a lot of 
companies and car companies definitely pay sort I think of it's nominal ba- lip it's basically service. a brand we're going to see a lot more on yeah, on our yeah. on our roads it's kind of cool and i just think there is yeah it's kind of nice to have a different brand you know than the usual so yeah definitely right where are we going to go on to next we are Do you going want to talk about michael wolf Michael Wolf, yes, you did interview. Yeah. Who's basically, I don't know much about Michael Wolf. All I do know is he seems to have made a career yeah. writing about Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump and, yeah. and anyone else. I mean, he's got a collection. Amazing writer, though. He's an incredible writer. He's got a correct collection of essays, which is like my most well worn book on my shelf. And I showed him actually the copy. Um, Why? It's sort of to try and. Just because you, know. you always dig into it. Well, yeah, I look into it so much because if Out of you want. interest or try to hone your writing skills? Uh, both. Okay. I want to copy his style and also his style, which is kind of like absolutely unapologetic. And I, and I also, if you want to know what a famous person, a powerful person is really like yeah. without any of the PR bump, that book has it in it, whether it's Christopher Hitchens, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. Why? And Why? Because Why? he. He has this amazing thing, which I wish I had, but in some ways I'm glad I don't, that he really doesn't seem to mind what people think about him. And if he finds out something that someone will be embarrassed to say, not in a tabloidy way, he will very diligently and rigorously talk about it and, and no holds barred, warts and all, and give a really good nuanced impression of, of, of what these people are like. And the, the access he gets to these people... It's remarkable, and it's his books on the Donald Trump White House. Is he is he friends with these people? Like, is he like you know? Would not Rupert, not anymore. No, but well, with Rupert Murdoch, I think like, they did they did develop a closeness and an, and an affection. But then after um, his various articles and books came out, Rupert Murdoch now doesn't speak to him. That doesn't at all. No, uh, he tried to. He texted him. He told me in this piece um, to ask him for a comment on a recent Murdoch dynasty piece he was doing, and he just. Movement said no, thank you. So I think they are not friends. They don't talk. They got they got each other's numbers. But they got each other's they got each other's numbers. And as Michael Wolf says, when the time comes, and it may never come, but it it will come, that Rupert Murdoch shuffles off this mortal coil and dies, he will be the the one who writes his obituary. And so Michael sort of reminded, I think, in the middle of one great argument they had, Michael Wolf reminded Rupert Murdoch of that and said, "Listen, let's be honest. I'm the guy who's going to write your obituary." So So basically. Come pick, on, pick up your phone. Pick Te- up your phone. Text, text be nice to back. me. And he's absolutely right. And the reason he has that access and that influence in some ways is because he is just a phenomenal reporter, an amazing writer. And tell, tell me about Donald Trump and him. Like, what's so there? Donald Trump? I mean, it's talk about inviting the fox into the hen house. Donald Trump let Michael Wolfen knowing everything I know, presumably because his ego is so big, he thought, oh, I can be the one guy he writes an amazing puff piece on. Yeah. He then invited him back after he written his first book, which absolutely shredded him, and still. Yeah. There's some sort of and weird Stockholm syndrome. Yes. Donald Trump said yes. I mean, the, the man is remarkable, Michael Wolf, to get in there and write this. You also talked about succession as well. Talked about succession because um, Michael you love points Logan out. Roy. I love Logan Roy, and yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. But also, Michael points out that most of, um, you know, a lot of the sort of character notes they got for those people must have come from his insights into the Murdoch clan because no one has got closer or deeper or more under their skin I think than him so he's he's a brilliant writer and we spoke to him about his book The Fall which is um sort of the, about the end of the Murdoch empire it hasn't ended yet but it's you know it can't be that long away that Rupert dies and then the question is what happens to those children now uh, Michael points out that it's actually too much an uncomfortable amount of money to inherit an uncomfortable amount an uncomfortable amount what do you do is there such a thing as an uncomfortable I think so at at that point money becomes a problem because you've got too much of it you think you can't give it away but it gets very difficult to give it away I'm not playing the violin too much but 
there, there is a point when money actually becomes a real, real problem. And the interesting thing about Michael is he almost got ridiculously rich himself. So he's been adjacent to this. How did he get in the dot com boom? Hey, what, he, he had a media company which was valued an outrageous amount. But you talk about BuzzFeed and stuff, and like talk about BuzzFeed and those, and you know he's a mentor to most of the guys. So what was, his media, what was his media company? I can't remember what it was called. I think it was called like Wolf Media. But really? in the dot-com boom, when people were just scrabbling around to find the next Yahoo or whatever it was yeah. that was blowing up, his valuation was absolutely outrageous based on not much. Yeah, and then it what crashed. And then he was about to sign this deal. He was sitting, as he tells me, on a private jet with his accountant. And his private jet told him how rich he was going to be. And he got home and he woke his wife up and said, you know, we're multi-billionaires. Yeah. And his wife just said... We're not. Go back to bed. <laughs> and he thought, okay, well, what does she know? And then in just the coming days, he describes it just the very intricate parts that needed to fit together, just slightly drifted apart. away. And then the moment had passed for that. And then we were too young to go through this stage. Well, yeah, we what were we were children. Two thousand two, two thousand one. No, this was like late nineties, nineteen ninety nine. So that real that real time when it was like, if you could just sign the deal, you might become a billionaire overnight. He didn't. He didn't get that money. And yeah. I think he's quite honest about it. Like. It's a good thing. It's it's a good thing. I mean, yeah. I, he wouldn't be a writer. Everyone who's lost me. money says that, don't they? they yeah, yeah. They, no, I don't honest? think he thinks it's a good thing in that sense, but I think yeah. it's a good thing for us. But it basically, his superpower in that way is that he is, he understands this world because he's been adjacent to it for so long and lived in it and moved around in it. Mm. And he's sort of the great chronicle of our times. He's also, in quite a shrewd move, now got a weekly column in the Evening Standard, yeah. which they weren't, to be honest with you, that many reasons to pick up the Evening Standard no. on some days. Dylan Jones is doing a good job. Dylan Jones is doing a great job, and he should yeah. give me a restaurant column, and he's doing yeah. an amazing job. Is but, this, are you just using this to try and pitch a column? Oh, but God, yeah, exactly. Um, a restaurant but column. I don't know. I, I think, think that yeah. would be nice, wouldn't it? But yeah. anyway, Michael Wolf's doing that, and it comes out on Wednesdays, and the reason they've done that is because this is an American election year, and no one probably has a better read on Donald Trump than Michael yeah. Wolf. He would be personally appalled if... Donald Trump won, but it yeah. would be immensely lucrative for him. It, it, it's the cash cow that keeps on giving to him. He will um, get so much columns and so many books deals if Donald Trump sadly becomes what, twice elected what, president. What, just out of interest from my side, yeah. because obviously I'm running the Gentleman's Journal, what's his views on media in general now? He thinks it's very hard to make it work, but there is a way to make it work. But Because yeah. you talk about Guardian, talk about BuzzFeed. Yeah, exactly. I, I asked him just his sort of opinion on various media entities but he basically says that there will be a moment when you will manage to exit or manage to take your money and run, basically. And he um, says Polisco did that. Polisco did that, Axios Buzz, did Buzzfeed that. BuzzFeed didn't. And BuzzFeed just missed their moment. I mean, And he and talks now, about The Guardian as well. The Guardian, yeah. He feels that's sort of gone downhill. But he wrote the most incredible takedown of Alan Rusbridger. Or, or not a takedown necessarily, but sort of... Alan Rusbridger being the former editor. Former editor of The Guardian, yeah. And he sort of wrote about his the, the battle for succession ironically in yeah. in the guardian um and yet yeah, it's just an incredible piece no one can make you see the sort of inherent shoddiness in certain great institutions than him and the guardian i think he feels sadly because he used to love it is just no longer what it was and is chasing the wrong thing and basically preaching to the choir and just trying to make it following the crowd makes it sort of which you can't really do in media anymore do you, you no. have your own yeah, I think you've got to do your own thing and have your own voice and just sort of hope that people like you and then not just try and Which play do, to them. I feel like we do that quite well. 
We yeah, we we probably do now. I, I think probably for a while we didn't know we what didn't, it was. We were following the crowd. But then and who now, knows what they are? And now you came. Does in anyone way. ever know what they yeah. really love? But anyway, so Michael Wolf's brilliant, and I could talk about media right. wranglings for the rest of my life. There's quite a few interviews that we're going to go yeah, through yeah, as yeah, well. Please. So shall we start on Conrad? and Mickey Down. Yeah, well, this is out to lunch. Talk about restaurant columns. Yes, there you go. Uh, am so I the first you, one where to you, where do you go for lunch? pitch a lunch format? Yeah. Um, I'm not at all. Uh, we went to Langen's, Langen's Brasserie. Old school. Yeah, Is great. it good? I have, it's great I haven't fun. actually had I mean, lunch there. Talk about power lunches. That used to be in London, one of the all great owned, time places. Owned by, owned by Michael Caine, part owned by Michael Caine. Part owned Kane. by Michael Caine. And then, and then Langen himself. Yeah, and Langen himself, he used to drink 12 bottles of champagne a day. Okay. Um, in the ages and nineties, and I think probably it's fair to say him he died because of that sort of thing. Fair to say yeah. we're probably he used to throw some, people out of the restaurant. And stuff, yeah, he'd throw. Yeah. I mean, he'd be absolutely vile. But that was sort of part of the charm and entertainment. I don't think everyone found it charming. I think today he probably would be cancelled. Anyway, that's Langan um, for you. But now they've resurrected it, and it is still actually in a really impressive room. Before we get to the sort of interview, like. People it's are people. It's because it's open plan. You can see everything. It's open plan. It's also location. It's right near the Green Park. Yeah, exactly. It's got that nice corner, sort of corner slot, and you know, it's just a sea of sort of navy blazers and people huddling over steak and presumably talking about lots of money. It's sort of very hedge fund adjacent, and it's it's great fun, but also perfect to talk to Mickey and Conrad, who are the creators of industry, the sort of show that which is coming out. The, the new series season is coming out and I think it's just gone from strength yeah. to strength and just explain industry for the industry is, a, is set in an investment bank in London a fictional one and it basically sort of skewers the post um, financial crisis banking world and all the stories we hear about interns working 200 hour weeks and the sort of very masculine sort of toxic culture and the high stakes living and the, the highs and the lows of it all is sort of brilliantly skewered by them and at, the interesting thing about Mickey and Conrad is they both worked in finance as they were when they left university just because they thought that was the thing to do they met at Oxford they went on the sort of gravy train you get lulled and wooed by these big investment banks and then they went to work for them not because they had any passion for this sort of industry but because that was sort of the done thing and actually Conrad says in this actually they both said the reason they went into it is because they liked the clothes they liked the style which I think is probably a reason many people decide to get into banking but it's not a good one so they've got a sort of unique take on it and they're sort of been monumentally successful it's very rare that tv shows get made at all but and to have three seasons got, of an they've, hbo have they got how many seasons this, this is their second isn't this it? is their third third, third one's okay, coming out wow. so to have that going and it has been like a critical and commercial success and they are two sort of very old best friends and sitting with them having lunch they finish each other's sentences they start each other's sentences they have a sort of encyclopedic knowledge of I guess the texture of of the banking world and the clothes people wear and they're really interested in that and it's just yeah it's a brilliant show but it's brilliant because they are um, very very bright and annoyingly successful I think they're a year older than us that's depressing. Um, it's depressing, yeah. When's our That's big TV depressing. show coming? I don't know. Well, you, you, it's you, brilliant. You, you, I'll you pitch probably, a format now. You've you know. probably got a, a something in mind, don't you? Yeah, I've got a what's, couple of treatments. Your, have you thought about your book you're going to write? Well, I've got my book. It's nearly done. We'll okay. talk about it then. Okay. What, what if, it's basically sort of, it it sort of wants to... Um, this is great for me. I hope we get some listeners yeah. who actually work in publishing. It's sort of... It's a novel that I suppose skewers the sort of powerful classes of London, but okay. through 
the container, this I, lens a of a private members club. There is no Harry Jarman based okay. person. Actually, maybe I should write a character. Yeah, good. Good, who, go um, for it. Go runs for it. a, um, a men's time. magazine and <laughs> lives a um, life. So yeah, that was a thoroughly jolly lunch. Sadly, we couldn't drink because they had to go back to film editing suites. So talk of power lunches. And that you couldn't was, drink, really. Well, I, I, I think we... Wrote, you're writing about institutes, sort of about drugs, drinking and... Exactly. City, and and they, we had, they came to lunch, you had a try. So and you know what? We had the prefix the menu. has changed. And you had a prefix exactly, menu. Exactly, which was delicious, by the way. And they did give us a slither of wine because they wanted to show us these new wines on the wine list. Okay. So I had three sips of wine, but... I rather thought it might be in like a nine-hour marathon and yeah. we'd be stuck in there to dinner Everything's service. changed. I think you've got to stipulate before you have the lunch. Just say, hey, guys, I would like this to be a boozy lunch. Also, you'll get better content, though. I know, but they, you know, they're hard men to get hold of. Okay. The last thing I say about industry is that Mickey was at the Spectator Summer Party. Yeah. This summer? Yeah, this summer. And he barged his way through to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who was surrounded by a sort of mob of minders. And he said, obviously, Sunak used to work at Goldman Sachs. He said, have you seen the show Industry? I wrote it. And he said, yes, I've seen it. And he goes, did you like it? And he says, I thought it was a little bit explicit for me, which is the most Rishi Sunak thing to say. But sort of very sweet to imagine Rishi Sunak watching that and being slightly appalled by the... By the, yeah, but the all-nighters and the by the all-nighters and, the and then right, we're going, to, we're going to jump on. We're going to go to um, we are going to go to Samaritz. Oh, and, cool! Please, and you interview Rolf Sachs. Yeah, Rolf Sachs is one of my favourite people in the world. Really, his favourite word. I asked him what his favourite word was. I don't ask everyone, but I felt like it would be a good thing to say. And he said, "Oomph." Is oomph. my favorite word. Oomph. Okay. Everything should be done with oomph. And just tell, so tell, tell us about Rolf Sachs. Who is he? Rolf Sachs is a designer. He's known as Mr. St. Moritz, although he doesn't feel like he himself is a local because he moved there at nine or something. Yeah. But he is like the embodiment of the sort of St. Moritz lifestyle. He is the son of the very famous car industrialist Gunter Sachs, who was probably who is a playboy. the greatest playboy, married to yeah. Bridget Bardot, amongst other people. He's, and there's a lot of cool images of him. He's very cool, was sort of. Um, yeah, all How the many kids did he have then? I don't know. So, okay, yeah. I don't know. And they, was, they, they were part of the Opal sort of car family. Yeah, the car Opal family. thing. And then when you think of the jet set in that 60s era, he, Gunter Sachs is very much... The era we both wish we lived in. So partly, yeah. To that, that, yeah. If only for the lunches. Gunter Sachs is the man for that. And Rolf Sachs is a very different man, but I think he's certainly taken on his father's sort of appreciation of beauty and the good life in many ways. And... He has just a wonderful, wonderful way of looking at the world. He's obsessed with chairs, for one thing. He says that, you know, the chairs give a room or a dining room character. I'm looking around this room. No, We've got no, office chairs, no, office and it feels chairs. like an office. If these were beautiful mid-century... Well, maybe we should get some. Any, it would any, change everything. Anyone sell mid-century you don't notice, chairs? You don't notice the tables in a restaurant. You don't really notice the bonquettes that much, unless they're a horrible colour. But the chairs themselves give all the texture, he says. And this is a man who's kind of dialed into those things in life and has like a visceral appreciation of... And what, and what were you talking about? He had an exhibition at Sotheby's, which was sort yeah. of a collection of his various items. Chairs in various forms, one of which was sort of inspired by a sledge on the crest to run. Is that a chair then? So I'm looking at it now, yeah. You, you know, I, I, it's probably more closer to a sled, but it could be, in, you know, it's got sort of elements of chair to it, if wow. you like. But so anyway... He, is he a serial collector then? He's a collector and he's got this incredible house in St. Moritz, which is the old 1948 winter olympic stadium down by this sort of lake element is it a lake i don't know where it is but anyway it's the stadion st moritz and it's a beautiful sort of mid-century building which maybe some people would think wouldn't be where you would build your beautiful house but he's changed it into the studio this amazing space 
And that sort of sums him up. There's a picture of him here and he's yeah, working amazing. at a ping pong table, yeah. which is quite fun. But anyway, his favourite word is oomph. He wears these sort of round little glasses, which are perfect circles, almost as if they're the O's in the word oomph. And he seems to just really love life and love everything. And I sort of chatted him for 45 minutes and just felt so much better about the world and embracing stuff. He thinks, yeah, just sort of bring positivity to stuff and people can be a drain in certain situations and other people can be the ones that sort of light them up and he says, you may as well try and be that one. He looks very cool. He's but, cool, he's a great guy and um, yeah, yeah, seems to just live that sort of creative life which is, he just does what he likes to do. That is probably a luxury many of us don't have but we it's don't something, have. something to aspire to. And then, so I love him. The last interview, what have we got here? The last interview, aka Mr. Super Snake. So this is someone I hadn't heard of until you told me about him. What's your, tell me about Super well, Snake. Well, no, I'm just, I'm a bit obsessed with these, um, I guess you call them influencers on Instagram. I guess you do. Is that your uh, word? Yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah, the most overused word. But obviously, like, I think two years, issues ago, we did Gustav Guy. Yeah. And he's... I think we made him, didn't we? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's quite annoying because he's done the FT now. And I, I know. Like we definitely... We did, I think we did the first proper interview with him. first. Anyway, shout out to Gustav Guy. But he's basically made a career out of taking the piss out of the yeah. wealthy. Yeah. And he's very much focused on the Europeans. And then next one came along, Super Snake, who's basically taking the piss out of, a, again, a certain type of wealthy right. elite who go to St. Bart's and spray champagne okay. on tables. and Sort uh, of rich kids, like the new sort of jet set, but without any of the class. Yeah, the new sort of jet, yeah, basically like think G-wagons. Remover suitcases, brand girls new. who've had a lot of work on their face and yeah. who are just like sitting around tables and nightclubs. But he takes the piss out of them, so we did a quick Q&A to finish off the issue. Yeah, exactly. This is the new slot. We wanted to do a Q&A format, basically. You call it the final analysis. Final analysis, which is quite clever because it's the final thing in the magazine but it's also a sort of meant to be a psychological analysis it's kind of our own Proust questionnaire if anyone reads Fantasy Talking Fair about final analysis, they don't what will the final analysis of this podcast be for you um, <laughs> done well. I think it's been quite interesting it's hopefully, been pretty good hopefully other people think do you want to talk about some of Super Snake's answers yeah, yeah, or go, not go, 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 go. we sort of ask questions like what is the finest accent in the world yeah he says nothing's worse than a rah-rah Eton slash Prince William accent it's tough on Prince Will you know but fair enough What's the best city in the world? He says Los Angeles. Your favourite insult? As a Greek, I would have to say Malacca. I don't know what that means. It's okay. probably horrible, devastating. Yeah. But yeah, it's follow Super Snake. Two hundred thousand people do. Yeah, he's follow great. Gentleman's Journal though. Follow Gentleman's Journal. So that is there we go. That's the takeaway. Um, so what was the what was the code again? Joe, oh, Joe, Joe 50, 50 for Joe lunch 50. with me. For those of you who want to get your hands on the hard issue, Joe 50, we're going to go and set up a, yeah. a discount code and it'll be interesting. Should we, we should do bets. So Joe 50 and then we'll do a random lunch. We'll pick one person to have lunch with me. I, don't, I think that's probably more off-putting than anything else. Okay, so what? Are we just saying Joe 50? Yeah, Joe 50. And okay. you know, if, yeah. Joe 50 and we will go. I'm available for lunch. That's the point. Go, go for it. You've talked all about lunches. In I know. It's, I'm hungry. Um, okay. But look, thank you very much, Joe. Thanks, Harry. And thanks for listening. This is fun. See you next time. Do it again. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.